Well, hello. Greetings and welcome to ECMOVEMBER 2013. My name is Jim Lantry, one of the second year fellows here for University of Maryland's critical care program. Also a recent graduate of our emergency medicine residency. I'm here to basically talk to you about a case I had about a year and a half ago that I used as a grand rounds about half a year ago. And the talk is essentially when discount medicine goes, goes wrong, when to take the ventilator out of the equation and move on to alternative solutions or other ideas to maintain that oxygenation. And I was trained by the great Dr. Amal Matu, who states that if you're going to make a title for a talk, make it a title that people will flock to come and see. So fatal deadly killer discount medicine going wrong, an unlikely disaster. Want to take the ventilator out of the equation and move on to alternative non-deadly solutions. Hopefully that'll work for today. So just as a caveat to everyone, uh, this is basically the epitome of where I grew up, Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, this basically shows, without all the gunshots, where I come from. We have had a few things part ways. We lost the Baltimore Colts when I was four years old. Natty Bo left slightly after that, and Cal Ripken retired shortly thereafter, maybe as a result of both of those. I don't know. But as most people around the world know, whenever I tell them where I'm from, they always mention The Wire, and yes, it is like The Wire here. Many of my friends are narcotics officers, and that is the way they live life. But more importantly, as another side note, we did recently have another legend in Baltimore retire after winning not only one, but two Super Bowls, despite the fact of how we're doing right now. It still counts. So uh, just as a caveat, I have no disclosures. And essentially, when you are confronted by situations you're not exactly comfortable with, it's extremely terrifying. And it's more often not in medicine based on people who don't exactly take the correct path in life. They truly don't do the best with the fact that they're given decisions, and they more often than not make poor ones. And that brings us to our case. So our case is a 24-year-old African-American female with really no past medical history, nothing surgical, really married, normal, normal person who simply says on the triage note, I recently had some enhancement performed. And she went to the outside hospital on uh, pretty much a lovely or early summer day here with shortness of breath. The x-ray shows a diffuse infiltrate. She was diagnosed with pneumonia, admitted tele just to make sure she was okay. Antibiotics and fluids got started, so with the azithromycin, why wouldn't they? Day two, however, she became very short of breath which they felt maybe this was a PE, maybe we missed it on the initial presentation. CAT scan showed just a few grand glass opacities, but no PE. She subsequently decreased uh, uh, her ventilator status, increased work of breathing. She was eventually intubated on the floor, put on high vent settings to maintain oxygenation, and that requires an immense amount of PEEP and a lot of FiO2. She was covered then with ceftriaxone, azithromycin, vancomycin, and sent straight to the ICU. On day three, the P-plats were rising. We couldn't get any oxygen in her. A repeat chest CT is the one you see. Pneumomediastinum with a ton of sub-Q emphysema. Uh, she then dropped her pulse ox pressure below 70, and her PaO2 dropped to 48. And this was despite as much pressure as we could push into her and an FiO2 of 100%. At this point, the outside hospital panicked. They threw it right to our doorstep, and they came to University of Maryland. Now, on arrival, she was on APRV or Bivent or 
whatever you'd like to truly call it. Uh, she had what appeared to be diffuse alveolar hemorrhage by a bronch at the outside hospital and complete asynchrony with the ventilator. Her plats were upwards to the low 50s. She was extremely hypotensive despite pressors and all about her body she had crepitus. Despite having bilateral chest tubes placed, she had massive air leaks around them. We immediately placed a new right-sided chest tube. Despite all that, still only maintained a sat of about 65%. They started steroids and antibiotics at the outside hospital, which we kept. But we had to take a step back, and we had to look at the initial presentation. And we had to basically focus on the only thing that she could tell us is that she had some enhancement performed. And interestingly enough, on the news later that night, there was talk of someone going around the local area, actually soon to be arrested at a city about an hour north of here, Philadelphia, after having hydrogen, hydrogel injections combined with motor oil in the gluteal muscles. It turns out this is exactly what our patient had. It was in a hotel room, uh, I believe it was the Hilton, and it was, uh, it was performed by an individual which no names were ever given. And essentially, according to her husband, this was the seventh time she's done through this. So now we'll get into some radiology, because I like radiology. This is essentially her chest x-ray, which if you focus upon the fact that you can see muscles and soft tissue, that's really not normal. Normally, that indicates a lot of uh, sub-Q edema. And let's see if this projects. This is essentially her chest CT. And as we go down through here, you'll see what eventually is showing up as diffused fibrotic changes, sub-Q emphysema. She starts to have these pockets of air. Uh, you'll see the, the chest tubes move in and out. Uh, eventually, you'll see the pulmonary arteries are starting to dilate because the pulmonary hypertension trying to push through this diffuse, ridiculously uh, inflamed lung parenchyma. And this is pretty much a global process. You really can't pinpoint one area that's hit more than any other perhaps more proximal versus more distal, but there really, it wasn't really an area that we could truly target that was gonna be treated appropriately. So we had to basically kind of brainstorm, we're at our wit's end, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna treat this? So the diagnosis wasn't honestly that difficult. It's been known since almost 40 years now that if you inject silicone into the body, you get this diffuse pneumonitis. The problem was, despite being around for 30, 40 years, no one's really sure how to truly treat it. So the true question is, what do you do when the ventilator is, quote, turned to 11? And that's when you run out of ideas on the vent, where are you gonna go from there? So the better question is, what are my goals? What exactly am I aiming for? Do I really wanna treat hypoxia? Do I wanna wean off all that hypercarbia? What resources do I have? Am I in a tertiary center where I have everything in the world? or am I at a small community hospital where I may only have a ventilator and someone I can call? And thirdly, what's the baseline? What am I trying to truly get to? Is this somebody with end-stage COPD that's never really gonna get off the vent? Uh, and finally, who am I treating? More often than not on rounds, you'll find that you're looking for a great number. You want that beautiful ABG, but are you doing it for yourself or are you really doing it for the patient because in the long run, the aggressive work you're doing will truly lead to a better outcome. So there are a ton of rescue therapies that have been talked about. We're gonna go through all of them. I truly won't list them. You can read them. But we're gonna start with neuromuscular blockade. Now, pre-2010, it was theorized that if you knock somebody out, you can increase 
vent to patient synchrony by basically taking all the work and all the effort out of their, out of their court and thus increase oxygenation. And the duo of Gaynor and Farrell twice in 2004-2006 uh, took very sick patients, PF ratios below 150, very low tidal volumes, and gave them neuromuscular blockade for 48 hours. On day one, they actually saw a slight improvement on that PF ratio, and by day five, they saw an, an immense increase in that PF ratio, up to 140%. They also saw no asynchrony at baseline and they did the proper thing. They used train of four testing to make sure that they were getting the proper amount of neuromuscular blockade along with sedation. Now, the huge criticism was is that there was a lot of ICU myopathy that was kind of pushed by the wayside, and there were no real validated results coming from this. So based on that, in 2010, Papazian uh, had the landmark journal in the New England Journal of Medicine where he did a randomized controlled trial, 340 patients, cis-acetronium, versus placebo for two days. Again, he picked very sick patients, and this time he looked more at the 90-day mortality than the PF ratio. So he found in about a month, there was a trend uh, towards a decreased mortality that actually carried over for, for a full 90 days. Um, it was not exactly significant at 90 days, but it was a trend towards the positive, and there was no myopathy difference, which was the previous concern. The criticism is there's poor blinding. I'm not so sure how you could blind somebody who's paralyzed and who's not. There was really no control of the synchrony in the placebo trial, uh, and there was really only myopathy diagnosed or evaluated at 28 days, not at 90 days, where more often than not we'll find our ICU patients actually suffer. And again, finally, there was really no train of force, so a lot of people thought that perhaps he either was not giving them proper sedation or not actually... Uh, paralyzing the experimental group enough. So if you combine both, you see this forest plot. If you kind of take two kind of mediocre studies that have a trend of the positive, you can see a possible favor in select patients for neuromuscular blockade. And in fact, it's something that we might often reach if we're at our wit's end. The next one is inhaled nitric oxide. So the theory here is that if you give nitric oxide, it goes straight to the alveoli that are around that they're actually being ventilated. The vessels that are around those alveoli might get dilated, and you might actually get better VQ mismatching. This will, of course, decrease pulmonary artery pressure and actually may even lead to a better outcome. So two of the studies, uh, both meta-analyses, one in 2003 with Sokol and one in 2007 with Atikari. Uh, the first one just showed increased oxygenation, but again, no lasting effect, no change to mortality. And four years later, the, same the exact same type of study, slightly more randomized con control trials in the, in the interim, showed again increased oxygenation on day one, but truly no long-term effect. It didn't change any survival, didn't change the time they were on the ventilator, and it actually showed a strange increase in renal dysfunction, which we really couldn't uh, pinpoint exactly why. Again, criticisms, very high cost, uh, NO is an extremely expensive drug. There is an increased trend towards mortality. I put trend in there in quotations because it's a relative risk of 1.1, and there's a concern for renal dysfunction, a relative risk of 1.5. One, one the outcome still was kind of up there. Uh, we still use it. It's still not exactly appropriate at all times, but we state that if you use just for 20 parts per million max, 
for four days, and you don't get a higher PaO2 change more than 20% from baseline, it's pretty much standard for us to just cancel the, the whole use of nitric oxide and kind of pick a different solution. And that's been pretty much carried over through all our ICUs here. On the, on the same note, the same exact mechanism is prostaglandin, i.e. prostacyclin. It has the same exact mechanism, vasodilation, uh, decreased cost, hardly any side effects compared to, to the nitric oxide, and there's really no specialized system needed to give this medicine to people. Uh, the whole cost behind nitric oxide is that one patented way you give it to patients. So the big study that everyone relies upon is a Cochrane review in 2010. Afshari did. If you look at it, there's really only one trial, and that's of 14 children with ARDS. Truly didn't show any change to mortality at 28 days. So the huge criticism is we don't know what we're doing when we're using it. There's no randomized control trial to justify any of it. There's also no real way to give this consistently like nitric oxide. And you have to always give it continuously. You can't stop, meaning they really can't transfer out of the unit because the half-life is so low. So again, our outcome here is it's, it's all experimental. We don't really know uh, what we're doing, but if you're cost crunched and you want an idea, this is always something you could try. Uh, another solution could be corticosteroids. The theory behind this is it might improve oxygenation. And no one's really sure how it might activate neutrophils, uh, excuse me, inhibit the activation of neutrophils, inhibit fibroblast proliferation, and inhibit collagen deposition, but no one's really sure. Uh, there's been a pretty good study by Tang who basically took as many studies as he could find in 29, um, of five cohorts, four randomized control trials, showing a slight decrease in mortality, a nice trend of a relative risk of 0.62. He also found increased days off the vent, decreased ICU length of stay uh, as a result of that, decreased organ dysfunction, and actually a better PDF ratio. Now, again, the criticism is, although he combined a lot of great trials, there really weren't a whole lot of powered trials in there. So there wasn't a huge randomized control trial to say yes or no, uh, in the use of steroids, but uh, the whole caveat is there was no change to infection, which everyone thought there would be. Everyone thought the, the pneumonia rate would skyrocket, which it didn't. So the outcome from all of this in, 20, in 2008, a consensus statement went out that if you have ARDS and you're less than two weeks into it and you don't plan on blocking anybody with neuromuscular blockers, which would then increase myopathy, it's a type B, weak, but still a recommendation to use corticosteroids for at least three days and try and find an improvement. Uh, and that kind of leads me to just a picture. And this is basically the histology of a diseased lung in ARDS. And everyone always points to the fact that the dependent areas are pretty much where all the inflammatory markers go, causing edema, exudates. And pretty much all of this, the weight upon it causes atelectasis and nice sparing to the actual top portion, but unfortunately, blood flow goes by gravity and you actually hit the inflammatory areas and the dependent areas, and that may be one of the reasons that we have such terrible lung function in, in ARDS patients. And this, of course, leads to a VQ mismatch and hypoxia. So the theory is if you flip that, if you take the edema, atelectasis, and exudates out of the dependent areas and you spare them, perhaps then you can fix this VQ mismatching and actually lead to a better outcome. 
So the theory behind prone positioning is just that, to increase the actual oxygenation by matching up the areas of the lungs that actually get the blood flow. So there were a ton of studies. In 2008, there were four meta-analyses, none shown anything. In 2010, Dr. Sood, again, could not be held back, did another one, uh, an, excuse me, another meta-analysis. And this time, he did show a reduced mortality in patients with extremely diseased lungs, very low PF ratios. Uh, not exactly the strongest relative risk, but it was still there. And he did have a caveat that if you do have uh, just anything but the most severely affected ARDS lungs, you really don't see any improved outcomes. And there were a ton of adverse effects. So not only do we have the ET uh, tube obstruction, which you'd expect, there's a ton of ulcerations. And strangely enough, the highest risk was a loss of a chest tube. Now, the, po the positive is that the central lines and the actual tube itself were not lost in extreme ratio. So in 2011, they pretty much took all the studies they could uh, threw it into a forest plot, and again shown what Sood said in the past, is that if you have the most diseased people down here with severe ARDS, there's a trend towards the positive. If you only have, and this is before the Berlin definition, just the acute lung injury, perhaps you don't see the, the, the absolute benefit that we had thought in the past. And we felt all of that until the summer of 2013 and the press of the trial, where his group actually screened over 50,000 people in a very large randomized control trial published in New England Journal of Medicine. They're able to select out the 466 sickest patients. Half were kept prone three quarters of the time, half were kept supine. And they were testing mortality. And the mortality they found was extremely beneficial. So they actually cut the mortality in half at 28 days and that trend carried over to 90 days with no adverse events. So as most studies, they tried to find criticism, but it's very low. It was an experienced unit. They did have the sicker patients, but as we previously stated, you would only really use this in the sickest patients, and you wouldn't try this with someone who wasn't experienced in doing it. So recent guidelines are leaning towards showing proning may be the go-to therapy for the really sick ARDS patients. So again, the exact same criticism. If you're going to lose your airway, your access, and your monitors, why do it for very little poor outcome? Uh, but... The actual conclusion is, is that it's pretty easy, it's pretty cheap, and it's not hard to do. So if you do have a unit that's good at doing it, this is a striker bed up here in the right corner, a uh, very similar one to what we use here at Shock Trauma, that if you have the staff willing to do it, try it. And studies have shown if you use it over 20 hours, meaning if you flip them for 20, you have them back to prone for four, in the absolute sickest patients, you can honestly get a pretty good outcome. But again, if people aren't used to to this proning and people don't really know how to do it and people aren't cognizant of the actual lines, it can definitely lead to a much worse outcome in the long run. And we have, of course, recruitment maneuvers, which is the tried and true method and the favorite of us here in the medical ICU. And this is essentially, if you have collapsed alveoli, why flip them over, why not just pop them open? Uh, you might actually increase compliance and uh, in the long term, despite having high pressures in the, in the interim, you may actually decrease the uh, lung injury. So what we do here is 40 uh, for 40, so 40 centimeters, 40 centimeters of water for 40 seconds, and then we return to a baseline peep 
slightly higher than we had before. So if you had a 10 a peep, perhaps now, you, now it's up to a 12, 13. So this has been studied. In 2008, there was a, a review for, again, acute lung injury. Uh, about 1,200 patients with a transient increase in oxygenation. No true complications, but it didn't really last. So again, here's your PF ratio pre and post. Pretty significant in some of the patients. And this is actually the CAT scans that, that you, you can see, and these are matched A to B and C to D. And you can actually see a decrease in atelectasis, but a retention of those ground glass opacities, meaning you're not really getting rid of all the inflammation, but you are opening up some of the, some of the airways. Again, there's always criticism. If you, increase, if you increase the pressure by that much, you're going to induce lung injury, especially if your plats are already high. You can also increase the amount of uh, compromise to the preload of the heart, and thus the, uh, the actual outcome may actually be worse off in the long run. But according to Fan's study, he didn't really see any of this, and this was a limited concern. So again, we do recommend in short term, you can try this, but you need to really be cognizant of hypotension and understand that there's really no survival benefit proven, and this might just be for a better ABG in about four hours. So of course, my love, when all else fails, go straight to ECMO. Now ECMO is a kind of funny beast, is that they've been thinking about doing this since the 1960s. And the first use dates back to Hill in 1971, when he treated the first patient with a motorcycle collision with ECMO. Now, these oxygenators, which you see down here, let me see if I can get the pointer going, these were actually made in their garage. They tried multiple methods of making an oxygenator to actually keep the, the blood and the oxygen separate without any air emboli. And it took a while to actually do this. But these are the first ones done, and they actually didn't go too, too poorly. They, they relied on roller pumps, which increased a lot of hemolysis and needed a lot of heparin. But it worked, and this guy actually survived. So based on that, there were 20 case, case reports published in, in 1974 of successful use of ECMO. And one of the ones based on this is Esperanza, one of the more famous ones up in Michigan, who at day one was placed on ECMO for heart dysfunction, and at, day 21, and at age 21 was doing well. Absolutely no comorbidities, and was actually living the life of a normal child in college, et cetera. So based upon a lot of this, Dr. Bartlett, one of the chiefs, one of the keys of pediatric ECMO, still up in Michigan, still practicing, that's still him, not, not that many months ago up in Michigan, started to actually cannulate neonates. Uh, and this required much smaller catheters and a lot more delicate procedures. But again, he had the best results of anyone because their systems were so compliant to this new system that they had the best outcomes and the best benefits. Now, the issues behind all this is that there's really no peer-reviewed data. In 1979, JAMA had an, an article came out that was actually supported by the NIH, which was the first randomized controlled trial of 90 patients. It didn't go so well. Uh, the ECMO patients survived far less than the actual ventilator alone patients did. This led to a lull, terrible survival rates. And then in 1986, Gatinoni re had a rebirth of adult ECMO. He had a case series. This was just VV ECMO, only uh, lung injury patients. Half survived when only 20% were supposed to. He had a much lower time on bypass, only about five and a half days, and a very uh, minimum blood loss as compared to previous, which was only uh, less than two liters, which was less than the four liters they were seeing previously. So based on this, the recommendation was 
You can do extracorporeal carbon dioxide removal, not exactly oxygenation, with low frequency ventilation, meaning taking the lungs out. As long, and it's a valuable tool and an alternative for severe acute respiratory failure. So this is the first statement that actually supported the use of ECMO in certain patients. So based on this, Morrison College took another stab at a huge randomized controlled trial and huge, I mean, 40 patients, single center. They compared ECMO to inverse ratio. And again, they showed that ECMO had a worse survival rate. The bleeding was ridiculous. Now again, they're still relying on roller pumps in 94. They still use immense amount of heparin and head bleeds and bleeding out were a huge concern. And this led to a further lull. And it wasn't until the CSER trial in 2009 when all these people were having these great results since the, the last randomized control trial that the group in Australia, New Zealand, England, et cetera, they all kind of gathered up and they made this huge landmark trial where they showed 63% of people surviving when they were placed on ECMO versus placed on uh, the, the Ventolone, again, VB ECMO. And they actually gained some quality years of life. Now, that's only 11 days, but it's still a gain. And if you look at the actual trend, these Kaplan-Meier curves, it's so much better than it was in the past. Again, everyone has issues with this. Of the people who were supposed to have ECMO, only three quarters got it. The people who were supposed to have ECMO had their lungs treated better. They got the steroids. They had the low-pressure ventilation. And for this small amount of 11 days of benefit, they spent twice as long in the hospital, and they incurred twice as many costs. So it was kind of it was groundbreaking, but it's constantly being talked about and, and currently uh, in need of some clarification. Now, based upon that, the groups from Australia and uh, the UK were convinced. So the H1N1 huge epidemic gave them uh, a reason to basically try it out again. So when they took all these patients, mostly young, mostly otherwise healthy, who were just afflicted by this terrible virus, and they placed them on ECMO as, a parent, uh, as opposed to the ventilator, they found that an immense amount more survived. And the first study uh, by NOAA here, they tried to compare the data sets three different ways. And every way they tried to show that there was no, any bi no bias whatsoever, every one of them showed very significant improvement with ECMO. And then uh, all these observational studies of the the people in the hospital found people were relieving the ICUs left and right, 80% in some cohorts, as opposed to the 80% who might have perished previous. So that led to the, the research ongoing right now that University of Maryland is involved in and the Alfred, where I just came from last month, are involved in, and that's the EOLIA trial. It's a French-based trial where they're actually trying to do the same exact thing that Caesar did, but or Cesar, but they're actually doing it to counteract a lot of those criticisms. So as opposed to the previous trial, everybody who is on either vent or ECMO gets the same vent management, ARDS protocol, et cetera. Uh, everybody who has an ECMO transfer goes immediately and gets put on ECMO as opposed to just whoever they determine at the receiving facility to get ECMO. And last but not least, everyone gets steroids, which, as we said, it's not going to hurt in the first three days as long as you're not going to block anybody's muscles. So that leads me to um, one of the, the final plugs 
is that if your facility is pondering doing ECMO, even if you're not in any of these trials, uh, I highly recommend joining the, the ELSO group. It was created in Michigan in 1989. It's basically a huge collection of people from around the world who do ECMO, and they have an, an immense amount of education, research funds, et cetera, to, you, to have the entire world unite in the, the use of ECMO so that people can know once and for all whether or not it actually works. And a lot of their data shows that over the years, we're actually seeing a lot more people put on ECMO. And these results, these survivals, they're actually very similar to the CSER trial. Uh, six out of 10 people survive, especially with pneumonias and ARDS, it's half and half, which is actually pretty good. So going back to our case, uh, immediately upon arrival to our hospital, she went straight to the OR, put on VV ECMO. After 10 days of being on ECMO, she decannulated, extubated shortly afterwards, and actually did quite well. She had an additional two weeks in the hospital, getting over that pneumothorax, having that pneumomediastinum resolve. She did have an IVC thrombus, which can happen after the giant ECMO cannulas. She was kept on Coumadin, subsequently discharged home, went back to the gym, and as of 9-13-2012, is pregnant, but I would assume now she's had her baby and doing quite well. So this is, again, her initial chest x-ray. This is the one three months afterwards, almost completely resolved to a normal x-ray of an individual. So in conclusion, neuromuscular blockade trend toward decreased mortality, and it may improve your PF ratio, especially in the very sick, severe ARDS patients. Inhaled nitric oxide may actually in increase mortality as opposed to decreasing it. We don't know. It does show a slight increase in oxygenation, although it's a short-term effect. Prostaglandins, we don't know. We need a better trial for this. We need a little bit more randomized uh, studies. Steroids has shown to decrease mortality, get you off the vent faster, get you out of the ICU sooner, and actually decrease the organ dysfunction and may actually improve PF. So for early ARDS, the recommendation still goes to try steroids, especially if you are doing it early and you don't plan on using neuromuscular blockade. Proning, thanks to this beautiful study in 2013, decreased mortality, increased oxygenation may actually be the new go-to in addition to steroids. Recruitment maneuvers plus PEEP and no true change to mortality, but it may actually improve oxygenation overall. And ECMO, a lot of studies going on. A lot of them show a trend towards decreased mortality, but we, we really do need more studies to figure that out. But special thanks to Dan Herr, Mike McCurdy, and that's it. Here's some resources if you want to download those and read them. It's extremely riveting. That's it. Thank you.